0: you don't enjoy anything no oh yeah that's true (laughs) it's friday december the 7th and this is the dutch news podcast your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the netherlands I'm Gordon Darach, Dutch News Contributing Editor and Strobwafel Connoisseur, and I'm joined as usual by my fellow Contributing Editor and Viers de team, Molly Quell, and Paul Pater's yellow-jacketed domino aficionado.
1: Why am I yellow-jacketed?
0: Uh, because well, I thought, to, you, you, you did you not tweet a picture of uh, one of the, uh, oh, the, the the lone gilet jaune who made it to the uh, Tweede Kamer and was then escorted by police? Oh yeah, that's true. That yeah. was one
1: of the uphefts. Yeah, yes. that's true. There was a uh, a yellow jacketed uh, guy who was sitting on the uh, on the in the audience of the Tweede Kamer, but it's not allowed for the audience to make any political statement whatsoever. Ah. So he was escorted out by oh, police. Oh, because he's
0: wearing the yellow jacket.
1: Yeah, and that's that's considered a political statement. And um, uh, he didn't initially wanted to, to. leave leave he uh, yeah. also claimed that he was just a uh, road worker I was, was going to say did, yeah what was his claim
2: <laughs> that he just had like his car had broken down and he hadn't had time to change out of his emergency yeah. jacks. Or he was
0: working for the breakdown service and he came to take Thierry Baudet away. I uh, don't know, something like that. But uh,
1: yeah, uh, anyhow, he uh, he had to go.
0: Yeah, I just was amused by the fact that they tried to get some kind of gilet jaune spin off movement going here, and about two hundred people turned up, and they went to do a protest in the Mali felt By the time they got to the Mali felt about three quarters of them had dropped out, so they scrapped it. Was it raining? I think so, yeah. There you go. Well, they they spotted a discount sign in a shop window on the way. Probably, yeah. There
1: was also a yellow uh, jacket uh, uh, demonstration. I think it was in Nijmegen. Uh, I think it was a group of 50 people gathered. Uh, All of them were wearing yellow jackets, except one person who didn't get the memo. She was wearing an
0: orange jacket. Yes, I saw that. Yes. That was very good as well. Good
2: to know that they're welcoming to other... Other other, other, co- other jacket colors, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, Gordon, you've completed your uh, taste test of all of the flavored strobe waffles have, that we got for you.
0: I've gone through every single flavor of Albert heinz flavored strobe waffle. Uh, after you so kindly gave me an entire bag full of them, and so I've been working my way through over about th- two months. <laughs> oh, look- all most. of them. I've, I've had every single one. Wow. Yeah. Except for the plain ones, they're <laughs> still. <laughs> Except the plain ones. Yeah. Uh, I or... left them as a treat. As a treat after I've gone through all things like the lavender stalk waffle. And what was worse? The right. worst one was the lavender. Definitely, it, it actually tastes, it actually smells and tastes like your, your grandmother's underwear drawer. <laughs> why would someone use why that? I have that know? as a flavour? Well, why do you yeah. know Gordon, how it smells why, or tastes? <laughs> why do you know
2: what my grandmother's underwear drawer tastes like? Uh, we're not going into that, right? <laughs> 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 yeah, that, that's <laughs> another episode. Yeah. No.
0: Um, yeah. That's the After Hours podcast, and, uh, <laughs> and um, or, 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 or no hours podcast, <laughs> no hours podcast. Uh, and, and and Molly, so why are you uh, going to be so interested in Fiesta this uh, next year?
2: I I had a an insane realization this week. Well, I heard an, an insane thing, which is is that. So here comes my embarrassing confession, which is, is that I'm very obsessed. You were obsessed. at Lori last night? I was at the Lori last night, which mm. anyone that lives in Delft knows that that was a terrible decision. But and that's not the embarrassing... That's, embarrassing not, as, that's not nearly as embarrassing as what I'm about to say. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. Um, so, uh, we are aware that YouTube is a thing, and that um, there's a lot of people on YouTube who call themselves beauty gurus, mm-hmm. and I quite enjoy watching their makeup tutorials. Despite the fact that I am not typically a <laughs> lot of makeup-wearing person. Um, and there's one particular woman named Nikki Tutorials, who is extremely popular on YouTube with her makeup tutorials. And I only found out like two days ago that she is actually Dutch and lives in Amsterdam. I oh. had no idea that she was Dutch. Oh, wow. Um, and was very shocked by this. Wow. And <laughs> then I found out that she's going to be on Vias de Mol next mm-hmm. season. Uh, so I think I may have to watch it. You might yeah. have to tune in.
1: I've, uh, I've never seen any of her videos, but I do know that she's Dutch, but you didn't... She doesn't have an accent. She doesn't then, have I an I accent. She it, sounds
2: American. Did yeah. she?
1: Perhaps she's a couple of years in the united states or something i don't
2: yeah i don't know as at least on the her wikipedia page she was like born in wagen and then moved to amsterdam so there's nothing mentioning about that i don't know maybe she watches a lot of youtube i think i
1: know her because she was uh, listed in the uh, quote 500 or young people quote 500 or something she makes a lot of money with these videos
2: yeah she makes a lot of money with these videos and she has like her own makeup line and she is one of the many uh beauty gurus that i subscribe to on the youtubes and i had no idea that she was dutch that's a very Maybe she very, listens to the podcast. very embarrassing uh,
1: confession it is it is, it yeah, is. Yeah. but
2: if she does listen to the podcast i really like her new eyeshadow palette <laughs> and i would like for her to send it to me so
0: that's all. <laughs> So, without further ado, Paul, uh, can you tell us what is the op of
1: the week? Well, there, there was little op this week, I have to admit. It was it was a bit of a slow week, but uh, that I still managed to find a ridiculous story that everybody talked about on the internet. Mm. Uh, someone uh, on Twitter was walking around Garden Center Intratown, which Molly, I assume, knows very well. Extremely
2: well, because I have purchased a house, and now you're just required by law to go there three or yes. four times a year.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and your house is full of plants, so yes. I just assumed that all the plants were coming from there. Um, no,
2: my, my plants actually come from the bougie, uh, pricey as fuck, uh, fancy plant store in the Delft City Center, but that's okay.
1: Okay, yeah. well, s- sorry for misjudging. Please your do not insult <laughs> my plants by telling me
2: that they come from Intertown.
1: Okay, I'm sorry about that,
0: but this person was... That's another wh- sponsorship gone down the drain, eh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, This person. If was-
2: Intertown wants to send me some free plants, <laughs> I will also accept it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so this person was walking around Indra town and he was surprised to see that the garden center sold two pine cones in a plastic uh, package for 5 euros. This person posted a photo of the pines uh, on Twitter uh, with the caption that this was a ridiculous thing and people were, well agreed with him. It was widely shared and caused some uh, some upheav but on the one hand there were people that who were upset about the price because it was five euros. Mm. And other people felt that if someone wants a pine cone, they should just go to the forest and grab one from from the ground. You, yeah. know,
2: you know what I'm willing to pay for not having to go to a forest? About five euros. <laughs> so for me, I feel like this is a good yeah, deal. But if, and if, and was, you went,
0: if you went to a forest, presumably you would go there like by car or train or something, it would probably cost you about five euros. Yeah, unless you <laughs> live
2: in a forest. This is not that bad of a deal.
0: Exactly, and you are in a
1: garden center where they sell plants that are put indoors from outdoors it's the same thing so yeah i didn't really understand why people were mad about this if you don't want to buy it just don't buy it yeah Mm. and uh yeah it also reminded me of uh, there's a regular thing that people call some uphef because they walk around in the supermarket and they find i don't know a a hard-boiled egg or or a peeled orange or something and they 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 think that's ridiculous that that's being sold but at the same time, they buy uh, uh, chopped l- lettuce, for example, right. or, or or pre-sliced, I don't know, vegetables in a bag. Mm-hmm.
2: The, That's the same thing. The Albert Heijn, by me, has uh, frozen grilled cheese sandwiches, so frozen toasties. So you can just not have to, I don't know, put the cheese between two slices of bread and slap it in the oven, but just slap it in the oven, I guess. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so. Yeah. So if you don't want to buy it, just don't buy it. Yeah. So that yeah. was uh, that was the opeth of the week. I also included a photo, if you want to see it. Yes, we will. Yes, we, yes, we, we will. That. I'm sure it will
2: we be We saw, saw the here. photo.
0: We have the photo here. Yeah, so Those we'll are some we'll nice looking
2: pine cones. I don't... Uh...
0: Yeah, exactly. They're, they're selected pine they're cones. They're very tiny. Pine and, d- pine and I, d- I d- don't d- have d- to go to d- a d-
2: forest, d- which d- I'm keen, d- on, d- keen d- on not going to a forest. <laughs> you don't
0: like forest? No. i we go against forest. But you
1: have a forest in your house.
2: Exactly. Why would I need to go to another one? That's
1: true.
0: This week, we'll look at how an Armenian family are getting round the clock protection to stop them being deported, how Amsterdam called time on its iconic giant letters, and the government announced a final countdown for road traffic deaths. And in our discussion, we'll ask why a deal to improve migration procedures has sparked growing international OPEF. Ooh, international OPEF. Yeah, is inter- is going international. Yes,
1: and the Amsterdam letters was also OPEF. So there was it's an a, OPEF, a, a, yeah. OPEF episode.
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah. It is, an OPEF special. There's quite a lot of OPEF as well about uh, the top story. Since October 26, the Bethel Church in The
1: Hague has organized a round-the-clock church service in an effort to prevent the deportation of an Armenian family. An old Dutch law says the police is not allowed to interrupt a church service, meaning that they cannot pick up the family and send them back to Armenia as long as they stay in the church. The continuous church service has been going on for over a month now and has attracted worshippers and pastors from all over the country. The church has no plans to stop its campaign, even though junior immigration minister Mark has refused to use his powers of discretion to allow the family to stay. The family lived in a refugee center in Katwijk before moving into the church. The oldest daughter, Hayarpi, who studies uh, econometrics at Tilburg University. Her brother, sister and parents have been in the Netherlands for nine years. The family was granted refugee status at three separate court cases, but the Dutch state went to appeal each time. They were eventually rejected three years ago. The case is embarrassing for coalition partner Christenuny, because Hayarpi is an active member of that party, which campaigned for changes in the child amnesty rules before becoming part of the coalition government.
2: I, th- I think that this ridiculous old-fashioned Dutch rule is amazing and that this is an excellent form of protest. Mm-hmm. So it's probably is one of these
1: rules that come from the uh, Napoleon times. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, but they're making very good use of it. And they've got a kind of rotor going, haven't they, of pastors and come just, in and people just constantly.
1: And it uh, attracts a lot of people from all over the country to, to attend these uh, services, services in support yeah. of these uh, this family. Yeah. And uh, it's also being picked up by international media. Yeah, story, yeah, yeah, right? it's
2: been all over the international media. Yeah. Was, mm-hmm. I think it was was picked up by the international media before the Dutch press really got into it. I was going
0: to say, I read, certainly read about it first in, uh, I think, either on the BBC or one of the international yeah. papers. Oh,
1: yeah, Interesting, yeah.
2: But it seems, I mean, even Gein Style has come out saying that these people should be allowed to stay. I just, purely from, like, an economics point, I don't understand why you keep appealing these refugee claims, right? Like, it must cost the state more money to continue perpetuating these court cases than it would to just, like let these families stay once they've initially passed their, you know, asylum claim appeals. Like, I just, it just seems like a waste of money to me.
1: That's true, yeah, but the government is saying that Armenia um, is a safe country now and that they don't have any right to stay here. I don't know what the situation in Armenia is. I mean, but...
2: I, I suspect that part of the problem here is, is that they are Armenian Christians who I don't know how well they are treated as a minority group. Although, ma- actually, maybe, I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's not true. Uh, but Mm -hmm. they're not the only ones because we also (laughs) had this case of... who were the
1: Lillian kids? Lillian Hoyk, yeah. yes. A couple of uh, months ago. And, and, and their story really caused uphef. And eventually it caused so many uphef and yeah. outrage that the junior minister was forced to, to use his uh, power of discretion to allow them to stay. Yeah. Um, and I assume that uh, this family is hoping that... Uh, He'll do the same thing. Uh,
0: he will do the same thing. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah. possibly because of the Lillian Hoyk case and the uphef, that caused him he's more reluctant to use the discretionary power because there was a lot of... It seems absurd of to me. Like you're going to the have part. these
2: these families, they're staying here for ten years while you sort yeah. out their court cases. They and become... in the meantime, they're
0: going to school, and right? They're studying, and yeah. they're actually making progress. And they're fully integrated. You know, they made a success of their lives in the Netherlands, yeah. and then you want to just. Yeah, throw a lot away and uh, send them home just because you're you feel like you need to um, take a hard line on immigration. Yeah,
2: and there was also a report in the NR was it the NRC this week about how uh, uprooting children who had established roots here in the Netherlands is really psychologically disruptive to like these kids. That they've done some follow up studies about kids who have been deported and just you have to. Speed up the immigration process by which they are not. So they are not here. They do not have the opportunity to stay here for ten years. If you're going to deport people who have been here for that long, yeah. And if you
0: get to the point where they have been here for five years and you know they're at school and they're integrated and they speak the language, then what is the point of continuing to try and deport them? It seems like it it must be more
2: expensive for the government to try to deport them. Fix the system so that you can give answers to asylum cases within a year, which is what the law is supposed to be, and then you know you can send people home yeah. if, you know, the countries are really safe. But as
0: we'll come into to in the discussion, all the efforts to try and fix the system and make it run smoother is also causing OPF, so yeah. Yeah. But we'll, we'll be yeah. talking about that yeah. in the second half of the podcast. The government set itself a target it won't meet this week. It wants to cut the number of road traffic deaths to zero by 2030.
1: That's an ambition.
0: It's a real ambition, yeah. yeah. Uh, there were 613 fatal accidents in 2017, and the number's actually been going up for the last couple of years. For the first time, more cyclists than motorists were killed on the roads, and Transport Minister Körger van has announced a series of measures to improve safety for all road users, and the cabinet is spending 10 million euros.
2: So what are these measures exactly, Gordon, that they're trying to take?
0: Uh, It's a mix of things. First of all, texting while cycling. That's already being banned from next July. Uh, There's also going to be extra checks on 20 of the most dangerous provincial roads, uh, there'll be infrastructure upgrades to improve junctions and widen cycle paths, so it's more sa- um, safer for cyclists. And there'll be compulsory road safety courses for people on um, scooters who are caught under the influence of drink or drugs. Motorbike helmets will be given an expiry date. Apparently they, they degenerate over time, mm. but uh, often owners aren't aware of that. And safety standards are being introduced as well for cycle helmets. But cycle helmets won't be made compulsory, and the 130 kilometer speed limit on motorways is also not going to change because uh, the Fede Fe are too committed to it.
1: Yeah, but there was a climate law that was uh, discussed in Parliament yeah. yesterday and um, according to this climate law there won't be any cars in 2013 because they will be so expensive that yeah. nobody can, uh, can afford them anymore. <laughs> so that problem is solved. Um, yeah, and uh, but but still road safety in the Netherlands is still one of the best in the European yeah, Union. For, sure uh, it is. for example, in Belgium I know that uh, the number of deaths Per uh, travelled kilometre is is double is, is twice as high as in the Netherlands. So um, compared to the rest of the European Union, it's it's not that bad in the Netherlands. But it is worrisome that that these deaths um, are increasing in the past yeah. uh, couple of uh, uh, years. And I also saw a story of the at the NOS of a roundabout in uh, Apeldoorn that yeah. was uh, that was being redesigned to increase uh, road safety, especially for cyclists, because roundabouts are usually combined with uh, with uh, with the bike lane, for example, mm. and that uh, is very dangerous because motorists they have to uh, watch out for not only yeah. uh, other cars but also for for cyclists, for, for cyclists mm-hmm. and they have to really turn around their head they they have to really crank their neck. neck. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, the, 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 that was an interesting story. Yeah. So I the mean,
0: in Apeldoorn, what they've done is they, they've made the roundabout square, right? Yeah, for the yeah. cyclists, so yeah. the
1: motorists can see them from uh, see them more easily. Yeah. Uh, approaching the the roundabout.
2: I am curious, and I've not seen any, I didn't see any data on this in the report, but exactly like what, if they know what exactly causes, is the cause of most of these accidents, like is it people speeding on the motorways or is it cyclists who are driving, you know, is it cyclists where they share space with, uh, with car traffic and that kind of stuff? I haven't seen any details on this. I mean I suspect yeah, me neither, at least 85% of it is uh scooter delivery people who drive entirely <laughs> too fast. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, probably, yeah. yeah. But I think uh, using your mobile phone in traffic thats that's the real problem yeah. and one of the main reasons why this uh, this number is going up.
2: Yeah. But using your mobile phone as a car driver or as a cyclist. Both.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's a, it's a real problem for for both uh, yeah. car drivers and cyclists, yeah. And okay. uh, pedestrians as and well. Pedestrians. Extra pedestrians. Yeah. I definitely yeah.
2: walked into a pole the other day cuz I was WhatsApping.
0: Is that another? This is the the, the Molly <laughs> makes embarrassing yep. uh, revelations. It's a Molly uh, confessions uh, podcast. Yeah. we can maybe bring out the board game for Christmas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: A Dutch cultural icon has had its last day of appearing in approximately 14 billion Instagram photos this week. The red and white I Amsterdam letters were removed from their usual position in front of the Rijksmuseum on Monday and put into storage. The decision to remove the letters, which have been a popular draw for tourists for 14 years, was taken by the left-wing Green Party, GroenLinks, now the biggest on the city council in Amsterdam. Groenling's councillors say the slogan has become a symbol for mass tourism and individualism in a city which stands for solidarity and diversity.
1: Yeah, these images of the I Amsterdam letters being uh, torn down really brought memories back uh, to the, the statue of Saddam Hussein yeah. in Baghdad that mm. was yeah. uh,
0: being uh, being downed. And also the fall of the Berlin Wall. Yeah, I think <laughs> yeah. it's
2: very, very similar. Yeah,
0: the, yes. the, the fall of the Amsterdam letters. Yeah. 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 I still don't quite get the idea that uh, somehow it was uh, a symbol of individualism when it was... Because the, of the, the yeah, I. Yeah, no, it's because of the I. Way, but it was basically it was basically saying everybody. Yeah, everyone is, is Amsterdam. Amsterdam in their yeah. own way, and also yeah. it actually physically brought people together. You know, yeah. people crowded around the. <laughs> but letters, that was the problem. So it <laughs> brought too many people together. Yeah,
1: and the museum plan in Amsterdam is not the only place there uh, where the letters uh, can be seen. Right? No,
2: you can still take pictures with the letters. The city owns five in total. One is next to the slaughterpass Lake in the west of the city. There's one in the southeast by the Hed Museum, and there's some at Schiphol Airport. So you can definitely go take your pictures, just not right in front of the Rijksmuseum.
0: Well, you can still take a picture in front of the Wright Museum. Yeah, you now, can do that Actually, true. you'll have it's the, right the museum, museum, museum in the background, yeah. which is actually a much nicer background. Yeah, anyway, I would agree with that. I would think. But uh, yeah, some of the comments uh, about we had on this story on Facebook uh, caught your eye, didn't they, Molly?
2: They are. Uh I would describe them as batshit insane. Uh, we got about 100 comments on this story, which is a fairly popular story for us on Facebook, and most of them were very upset that this Dutch icon was being removed. People compared it to Trump's wall between Mexico and the US. They claimed that, along with this word-to-Pete discussion, Dutch culture was being destroyed. <laughs> I started
0: the idea that this is somehow a load of plastic letters in English... Uh, that have only been, there for, only been there for 14 years is that, but it's yeah. Dutch culture yeah.
2: um, someone called Amsterdam idiotic for quote removing something that was a symbol for cities around the world <laughs> my personal favourite was from one angry commenter who asked what is the point of removing the letters to kill one of the most successful tourism campaigns in the world so the city inhabitants can live in peace the answer to which is
0: unequivocally <laughs> yes <laughs>
1: The Anglo-Dutch oil giant Shell will be the first oil company to set carbon emission targets and link these to executive bonuses. According to the Financial Times, the move comes after increasing pressure from Shell's shareholders, such as Rebecca and the Church of England, who pushed the oil giant to make commitments to cut its carbon footprint. Last year, Shell announced its ambition to reduce its carbon emission by half by 2050, but the group of shareholders criticised this as not going far enough. Shell CEO, Ben van Buurden, was initially afraid stronger commitments would leave the company too inflexible to properly adapt to changing circumstances in the world market. But after a long dialogue with the shareholders, Shell decided to increase its emission goals. The thing that surprised me the most in
0: this story was that the Church of England is a shareholder. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the, the Church of England has its tentacles everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Soros <laughs> of our religion. There's <laughs> many even predecessors oh, of Soros. Soros. <laughs> yeah. um, so um, do we know how many... Just to bonuses- be clear
2: to our listeners, we don't actually think that George Soros is like backing us. A-
0: yeah, you actually have to make that clear these days. Yeah, you do. We don't me. we don't think yeah, this we don't we're don't not anti-semitic. No. Yeah, we're also not being paid by George Soros. Although if George Soros wants to sponsor this podcast, that's one, fine. That's, <laughs> we'll, that's okay. we we'll yes, Please money. get in touch totally George. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. <laughs> by denying this, you just <laughs> earned the bonus I think of yeah, George Soros. Exactly. Yeah.
2: And you know, and if you wanted to send me some eyeshadow palettes, I wouldn't be mad at George Soros
1: <laughs> <laughs> eyeshadow palettes either. Or plants. Or plants.
0: Doesn't matter. Do we know how many of these bonuses are going to be cut if Shell doesn't meet its emission targets? Well, so. it's still
1: unclear. Mm. Um, Shell will introduce a new bonus and payment system in 2020, but how this system will take shape exactly is not yet known. Yeah.
0: Will they be cut or will they be deferred? Which is what usually happens with the executive bonuses. They say, I'm not taking my bonus this year, and then they take it the next year. Yeah, or no they will increase just it. the annual yeah. Uh, payment, yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, the percentage of bonuses still has to be set, and this is still a matter of negotiation between uh, Shell's shareholders, the unions, and the board.
2: So does this mean like Shell will be a green energy company now?
1: Well, no, not in the near future. Shell invests a total of $25 billion uh, annually. And uh, starting in 2020, they will invest uh, $1 to $2 billion in renewable energy. Up to now, their involvement in this area has been very limited. And it is expected that in the long term, the company's main focus point will still be fossil fuels. Mm. Which makes sense because they earn a lot of money making fossil fuels.
0: Yeah, Yeah. it's kind of... What they are—that's so what they they're do. An really oil company. What they they're going to carry on being an oil the, company. Yeah. 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 Sports news now, and the Netherlands reward for the dramatic late comeback against Germany in the Nations League tournament is a semi-final playoff against England. Manager Ronald Koeman said it's always a battle when the two teams meet, although it was not clear if he was talking about the players or the fans. <laughs> 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 yeah, it'll certainly be the fans. Uh, the match will be played in the Portuguese city of Guimarães on June the 6th next year, and the final will be three days later. Uh, Portugal are playing Switzerland in the other semi-final. Oranje have also drawn Germany again in the qualifying groups for the 2020 European Football Championship. The two countries just can't seem to get enough of each other at the moment. And there's another chance to qualify through the Nations League tournament, but that's incredibly complicated. They're trying to make it to their first international football tournament, of course, since 2014. And the other teams they're up against are Northern Ireland, Estonia and Belarus. And given two teams qualify from the group, I think that gives them a pretty good chance.
1: Can you explain the other the other way? Uh, no, I can't. Can... I
0: really Well, if you've got half an hour... And no. Le- only let me use Wikipedia, then maybe. <laughs> and the <laughs> okay. diagram.
1: Instead of the, the um, incomprehensible uh, qualifying system in the Nations League, we can just discuss Dick Advocat. Yes. yes. Finally. Yeah.
0: yeah, there was some Dick Advocat. There was Alpef. Some, there, there was, some was Dick Advocat d- There was some vintage Dick Lawyer Alpef this weekend. Oh, it was tell great. me the Dick Lawyer. Please name. tell us everything about it. It's great to see. So Advocat, who is manager of FFC Utrecht at the moment, and uh, they're doing quite well, but they were involved in a very tempestuous game at Excelsior. They were 3-0 down at halftime. So Dick wasn't very happy at all in general, but particularly unhappy. This team weren't given a penalty, so he went over and bawled out the referee, Richard Martins, in the half time interval. And you can see video footage of this. To the went up to the referee. Oh. And, um, yeah, it gave him such an earful that the referee actually called him into his office to try and calm him down and show him the pictures and explain why he hadn't given the red penalty. And then okay. in the second half, the teams came out, Utrecht were playing much better, pulled back two goals in ten minutes. And then 15 minutes later, they had a very dodgy penalty decision of their own. Oh. Where Martin's at first, he wanted to give a free kick outside the area, but then the video referee got involved, said a the word far, in his ear. Yeah. And the VAR, yeah, said, um, actually, you should give a penalty. So he gave a penalty, Utrecht scored, that made it 3 all. That was the final score, so they came back from 3-0 down to three all, but then after the game, the referee said actually it wasn't a penalty because the player wasn't fouled at all. So okay, after so given- I assume
2: Dick Avocat graciously <laughs> said that this was all a mistake <laughs> and that he gave back the team's winning point. Uh, after the game because it wasn't supposed to be a penalty? Uh, no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah. But then that means because the, the manager of the other team, Adi Poldefar, was now absolutely fuming because uh, he felt that the referee had been influenced by the fact that Dick Avocat had had a word with him in the halftime corridor. Dick yeah. Lawyer lawyered so, his way yeah. into uh,
2: an extra penalty kick for so
0: his team. A lot of confu- <laughs> a confusing
1: story, is it? It's like the Brexit of the Eredivisie.
2: Is there any other uh, Eredivisie news, Gordon?
0: Uh, it's got slightly more exciting because uh, Piers Faye who'd won the 13 games in a row and we're just running away with it uh, lost to Feyenoord okay. so now only two points ahead of Ajax and Feyenoord are another five points behind what's the um, first
1: loss of PSV wasn't it?
0: it was the first drop points at all and yeah. drawn or lost a game all season so big win for Feyenoord and uh, PSV and Ajax are both in the Champions League action again next week as well
2: The Dutch news podcast's official guru and favorite Tinder match, Emile Ratelband, lost his bid to have his age officially cut from 69 to 49. Ratelband drew headlines around the world when he went to court last month to try to have the clock turn back 20 years on his official documents. Rejecting the plea, the court said that Ratelband is at liberty to make a formal complaint if he feels he's been discriminated against because of his age and that there are no grounds to make new jurisprudence on the issue – quote, all sorts of rights and duties, such as the right to vote and compulsory schooling, are dependent on age, but not on name and gender, the court said. Rataban had argued that changing age is the same as transgender people changing their sex or someone officially changing their name, which it unequivocally is not.
1: So the, the court basically says that if Rataban feels that he has been rejected on Tinder because of his age, he can just file a formal complaint. Mm.
2: I guess so. against like other people on Tinder? I'm not really sure if he was even too I think that's (laughs) what they are. Against Tinder, yeah. There was a ridiculous court case in the US a few months ago where someone had, they had matched on Tinder, this couple, and the guy had listed his age as like 15 or 20 years younger than he actually was. And when they showed up to the date, the woman was like, you are clearly older than you indicated. And he said, oh yeah, I'm not 30, I'm 45 or whatever. And she afterwards said, you know, they like had dinner or drinks or whatever it was. And afterwards she was like, you know, you're fine, but I don't want to date someone that's like 15 years older than me. And then he sued her for age discrimination. (laughs) And she might have lost the lawsuit except for the fact that he lied initially. And so it was like a breach, considered a breach of contract Mm. because he was like dishonest in the original. Yeah. Interesting.
0: yeah. 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 And why did Emil Rattelbunt want to change his age officially in the first place anyway?
2: I mean, I assume it's because he knew it would attract a lot of media attention, but... No,
0: surely not. How cynical of you.
2: uh, According to him, he says, quote, When I'm on Tinder and it says I'm 69, I don't get an answer. When I'm 49, with the face I have, I will be in a luxurious position. Uh, Side note, I've seen his face. I would not describe it as a luxurious (laughs) position. Certainly
0: not for a 49-year-old.
2: But basically, he feels 20 years younger, so he should be able to be 20 years younger.
0: And why doesn't he
1: just lie in his dinner profile like literally everybody else?
2: And one of life's great mysteries, Paul!
1: We'll be
0: discussing how migration has become a political hot potato once again after this word from our sponsors.
1: AXIS is an independent, not for profit organisation which has been helping internationals successfully settle in the Netherlands for the past 30 years. AXIS is run entirely by a team of highly skilled, motivated, and professional volunteers. Who have themselves been experts. Their vision is to provide essential, comprehensive and unique services nationally through the expertise and experience of their volunteer expatriate community. You can find out more about Axis and the services they offer at the website www.axis-nl.org.
0: This week the Tweede Kammer backed the Cabinet's plan to endorse the Marrakesh Pact, which is an agreement between countries to try to control the flow of migration. The government said last week it would support the plan even though the two largest coalition parties, Feifei and CDR, have voiced concerns about it, and there has been fierce opposition from right-wing parties such as Forum for Democracy. The document is not legally binding and won't be formally signed, but it does reaffirm existing commitments to give asylum to refugees and repatriate people whose applications have been rejected. Even though experts insist it has no legal force, the pact has sparked growing controversy. Several governments have withdrawn support in the last few months, and the Belgian cabinet was on the brink of collapse last week, so what's all the fuss about?
2: So Gordon, what what
1: is this
0: pact? Uh, officially, it's called the United Nations Global Compact for Safe, Orderly, and Regular Migration. rules f- enrolls? Which is typically a suitably wishy-washy name. Who could oppose uh, those things? And right? why is
2: it being called the Marrakesh Pact? Because it's being signed in Marrakesh. It's
0: been agreed in Marrakesh. And okay. There's a meeting in Marrakesh in, uh, more, uh, yeah, in, at the end of this week yeah, to yeah, yeah. where everyone's supposed to endorse it. Uh, it's a very cautious title for a very cautious thing. Um, it's, it's basically it sets out. It's it's like a to-do list or a memorandum really of what countries should do should be doing to ensure migration is processed processed smoothly and to try and sort of join up all the very different stages of the migration process. But ministers have been very anxious to insist it has no legal force and in fact the cabinet only endorsed it after they ins- included an extra um, what did they call it? They called it a uh, statement of position. Yeah I was going to say an und- in- yeah. explanation of position. Yeah well yeah, yeah Bodez called it an inlech um which, uh, which, which says, well, really just underlines the fact that it's not a legally binding document. They are insisting that, um, or Mark Haber's uh, told Parliament recently, quote the cabinet confirms that the GCM is not an enforceable document that confers rights or obligations. Um, And just the name, the fact it's a compact, it's not a treaty or a resolution, and the fact there aren't signatures reflects the fact how desperate Western governments have been not to be seen to be doing anything that makes migration easier. So the cabinet, um, yes, uh, added this uh, explanation of position appendix, which, uh, emphasising it has no legal force, which, ironically, most legal experts will tell you, has no legal force. In the actual legislature, it doesn't actually change anything. No, but... but uh, uh, the, the, of the document but the,
1: but the compact itself also has no legal uh, um. apparently not so what wh- and
2: why is it necessary like what's the what's i mean we sort of have a concept gordon but tell us
0: why. yeah it's it's kind kind of because you know obviously migration is con- a continuous uh, political hot uh, issue and they tra- they're trying to get slightly less chaotic we have has well, seen these immigrations of refugees in boats crossing the mediterranean and and drowning there's a there's a huge international people smuggling industry which uh, governments uh, are trying to get to uh, get to grips with and the snakehead gangs who are people are paying vast sums of their personal savings to transport them across into Europe um, it, also wants, it also meant to regulate the paperwork because one of the stipulations is that states should make sure their citizens have identity documents so that it's easier to well check who they are and also if you, if you decide you want to send them back then yeah. you know which country to send them to for yeah. example and of course there's issue that people will turn up at borders without papers or they'll deliberately destroy their papers and there's also to make sure that I try to make sure that asylum and migration applications don't drag on for years which is a problem we were talking about in the story of the Armenian family where they been here so long that it actually and they're so rooted in the country that you know any 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 attempts to to send them back actually become incredibly problematic so design Suppose the idea is to make it smoother and quicker and make sure everyone's singing from the same hymn sheet so who is uh
2: who's refusing to show up to the service to continue your church metaphor, I Indeed. know that Cherry Baudet is against this, <laughs> but what, what, what does he who say else? and who else is against it?
0: Yeah, Pierre Baudet has kind of been frontlining the uh, campaign against it. He's branded it the UN Immigration Pact and claiming that it's going to be used by migration lawyers uh, in courts to assert their clients' rights and to make it easier for migrants to come in. Um, and he's called it an invitation to African nations. Uh, to to use migration As a kind of bargaining chip uh, The PVV, the SGP and 50 Plus They're also opposed to the compact But, uh,
1: yeah, but yeah, what did he say in the Tweede Kammer? Was there a big debate in the Tweede Kammer? Yeah,
0: there was a big debate Because it's in- interesting He called us for a debate in the Tweede Kammer last week um, There had been he, he was complaining that the Tweede Kammer Hadn't uh, been debating this issue When in fact they'd uh, had four debates about it But they hadn't shown up for any of them <laughs> So he wanted another debate Which they then had And at the end of the, the debate The MPs voted to uh, overwhelmingly to endorse this combat yes and he also so, uh,
1: put a uh, motion of no confidence uh, to the vote and yes uh, which
0: only here in the pay supported yeah only. so that also, Shocker. Uh, it's one of those <laughs> things where the, 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 the there, there is a the, there is a grain of truth in what he says in the sense that I think one of the issues is whether or not this has legal force and although it doesn't actually confer any extra rights obviously you know, any legal document any legal opinion is going to be used in court yeah know, and, exactly. and, and, and it's not really the, 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 this is not the way that jurisprudence works you can just the, the politicians can decide has no legal force if a court is asked to consider the document and uses it in a judgment then it, it acquires legal force that's yeah. inevitably going to happen but he's kind of you know bode again has kind of embroidered his point and shrouded it in all kinds of conspiracy theories about African nations sending streams of migrants into Europe to you know to bring down Western culture or whatever which is which is nonsense Um says as Estrella leader Rob Yetten um, debated the issue with bode on Newsier and was pointing out that there are also obligations on nations where migrants come from to accept people who have been sent back uh, Or people who are not eligible for asylum, because you know that that sort of implies that there are going to be obligations on Western countries you, you, because you can't just have an illegal document that, uh, that that is enforceable in one country and not in others. You know, migration is a process that involves countries at both yes, ends so of I'm the chain. Yeah. yeah.
1: So uh, it is this this uh, mark Pact. It's a 30-page document. But what are the most controversial aspects of this uh, of this pact?
0: Obviously, there's this question of whether it's how binding, it, legally binding, it's going to be, and that's one of those things. There's no straight answer to evolve over, over time uh, how it's treated uh, in the courts opponents say it will strengthen the case of migrants and make it harder to deny them entry or expel them but supporters of the plan say it's designed to make the whole migration process run smoother and crucially quicker so we yeah. don't have these long drawn out cases um, there's also a requirement for countries to inform potential migrants better about the whole process which again as Thierry Baudet would tell you that this is uh, encouraging migrants uh, to, to move to the west because you know it's going to tell them uh, if how, they know how it works if they, they know are, how the system works yeah. and it makes it easier they they to to for them to yeah. but on the other but, but it's also meant to mean that governments uh, provide a more balanced picture or a more in, better informed picture because part of the problem is that the, the, that the gangs that um, organise the illegal migration at the moment make the West sound very attractive to potential migrants. Yeah. So the idea is that you have um, a more nuanced picture where, for example, there's a, there's a website called RumorsAboutGermany.info, which <laughs> yeah, stands, <really>? in, yeah <laughs> set up by the German government, which says <laughs> things like if you're an unskilled worker, you've got a very small chance of being allowed to stay in Germany. There's a perception that Germany is just letting absolutely anybody in in because uh, yeah, and said yeah, yeah. to be yeah, Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, And more controversially, I think there's also a pledge to stop public financing for news organisations that promote systemic intolerance.
2: What does but that even mean? It's yeah. a really vague phrase. Yeah, yeah. And it raises
0: the whole question of should you, you know, to effectively punish a media organisation because it's not promoting the government's message? So yeah. that kind of impinges yeah, yeah on exactly. that's freedom what, of the uh, press. What it sounds like yeah. yeah. And uh, a lot of countries
1: are joining this pact but are there countries that have opted out?
0: Over the Last few months, uh, some countries have withdrawn. So uh, the the United States, surprise, surprise, is not uh, has pulled out of this international agreement because it's pulling out of every oh, international okay. agreement yeah. at the moment, including like uh, the, the the international postal agreement, yes. which is madness. Anyway, that's a side issue. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's still not, it's not but... as bad as <laughs> it's still not
2: as bad as the international agreement that the UK has chosen to pull yeah, out of well, the entirety <laughs> of the European <laughs> Union.
0: Yeah, but also Hungary have, drawn, have pulled out again, not a surprise. No surprise but no. in recent months, Austria have joined them, and Poland and Slovakia and Croatia. I think oh, okay. and in Belgium it's been a, caused a huge um, furore and a serious rift between the coalition parties, and that's because the um, the NFA, which are the Flemish nationalists, launched this um, very spurious social media campaign to kind of discredit it by showing pictures of Muslim women in hijabs and claiming that uh, the deal will enable them to sort of bring their culture with them or, you know. In, as in, as yeah. opposed <laughs> to
2: just what people otherwise <laughs> not bringing their culture
0: with yeah, them? Yeah, because, because apparently um, people don't always want to uh, embrace Belgian culture. And weird, isn't it? <laughs> and he, and he <laughs> one of the coalition partners. It is actually a coalition party in, in the Belgian government. Um, There's there a few storm of uh, protests about the, well, firstly from them about the compact but also against their campaign which even party leader about to favour had to admit um, was, uh, mm. the, 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 the pictures did not reflect or were not taken from Belgian life but he insisted. He insisted similar scenes could be found in Brussels on a daily basis even though he couldn't actually find any photographic evidence of it. <laughs> right, I think actually. this goes a
2: bit back to this. There was a story this week. It came out of Oh, I don't remember the statistics organization that did this study about how people perceive things about their own country and what the actual like s- situation is mm. and so th- the Dutch they ask some th- some questions about like how many people here are born like out have are, are from outside of the Netherlands or have a parent who's from outside of the Netherlands you know what part of the population is Muslim what's the unemployment rate and like the Dutch are like way off on this right like the Dutch assume that something like 20% of the population is Muslim and it's really like 5% they think the unemployment rate is like 18% and it's really like 4% mm. like people just have these this crazy <laughs> (laughs) notion of like what things are and it is not at all grounded in reality. Yeah,
1: it's it's typical that, that a lot of people in the Netherlands, they, when you ask them, how are you doing and yeah. are you doing well or doing mm. uh, bad, then they always seem on an individual basis that they are doing well, but yeah. in, the country as a whole is, it's not, is, doing is, well. is not doing well, yeah. even though the country is doing fine. fine. Mm. Yeah, um, And uh, you know also with, uh, I mean, the Netherlands has one of the, the highest incomes, uh, for example, yeah. one of the lowest uh, uh, poverty rates, one of the lowest uh, unemployment rates, but yeah, yeah, yeah people and it's got records on health and yeah, education low crime and rate and I mean, crime. Yeah. And yeah. yeah you were talking about one of these comments on Facebook that people are wondering why are you putting uh, why are you comparing these numbers with the rest of Europe but that is because if you see everything in perspective then right. you know that in the Netherlands it is not going it's going fine here in the Netherlands yeah. it's not that bad for example these uh, we talked about the uh, death rates in traffic yeah uh, I mean if you if you look at the number of people that are dying in the streets of the Netherlands then it seems like a high number but if you compare it to the rest of mm. Europe Right. And, and, and uh, I mean, compared to the numbers of uh, people that are dying per traveled kilometer, then mm. the Netherlands is a very safe country. Yeah. yeah.
0: But, but I think it's because you have um, politicians who tend to use hyperbolic language and talk about, you know, there's <coughs> a lot of <coughs>
2: <Jerry Boudin>.
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure, but the media It is transferred across into the media and, uh, and, uh, and using kind of um, set phrases like mass immigration, where there really isn't mass yeah. immigration. People migrate, and sometimes there is a surge in migration because, for example, as a war in Syria and everyone wants to get the hell out yeah. which is pretty understandable but, it, but th- those numbers have fallen again and I think part of the reason I think this has become such a controversy is that parties like uh, the Pefefe and kind of need migration to be on the agenda it's what they really score on so I think there's been a lot of kind of dog whistling going on you know Baudet has been going on about calling this an immigration pact when it isn't so what happens
2: when there are Brexit refugees but most of these people are white will the anti-immigration parties still hate them it'll be interesting yeah
1: depends if they're from Scotland or England That's true.
2: So I think for me, what I take away from this is is that it just seems to me on a holistic level, nations are not interested in fixing the problems that create all this mass mass migration in the first place. It's difficult to stop the war in Syria necessarily. But, you know, there is a lot of places in Africa where a lot of these countries in Africa, right, like Ethiopia and Eritrea, where basically people are just like fleeing just complete destitute poverty. Or, you know, for a bet, maybe a better example is to like look at the situation in the U.S. where migrants are fleeing like horrible gang violence that's there which is created by drug trafficking and like rather than having some sort of taking the money that we're spending arguing about what to do with migrants who are already here and trying to like invest it in in civil you know structures in countries that would make them like safer and more prosperous which then in theory would make it so that people don't want to leave right that they want to stay Mm -hmm. in their own countries
1: yeah because in essence people don't want to leave no most people don't want
2: to leave like it's not you know some people want to you know be spoiled expats and live abroad like, my like you two, two-thirds of this <laughs> yeah. podcast but for the most part you know people want to stay in the country where their friends and family are and they're only yeah. leaving out of desperation Indeed. so if you make these situations less desperate People won't leave.
0: Yeah, and you saw twenty years ago there was a big uh, wave of uh, migration coming from um, the countries uh, that used to make up Yugoslavia because yeah. of the civil war there. Yeah. Most of those people have gone home, right? Yeah, you know, because you know th- those countries it's... are now prospering right. and uh, they're stable, safe places to live in. Yeah. that's so, actually where they want to be.
2: Yeah. You know. So I wish we were just having so much more conversations about how you can, in a non you know colonialistic way, intervene in other countries to improve the status of living there for the people, so that people want to. Go home. And instead, we're arguing about non-binding, non-legal, non-whatever resolutions that you know are basically irrelevant.
0: Yeah, but the weird thing is, as well, I think that you have parties like uh, you have politicians like Ville and uh, making a big song and dance an issue of migration and then the the, um, the the government parties that keep falling into the trap and making the same mistake where they now have this uh, this very non this very weak this very cautious non-binding pact and they've sort of added this extra little appendix uh, sheet of paper to say to 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 reemphasize the fact that this is not going to confer any extra rights on migration and kind of really reinforcing the, the perception that there's something inherently wrong about migration yeah. and it's it's a problem that needs to be sort of solved or contained, yeah. rather than just saying out quite clearly, let's straight, here's some news in the real world. You can't stop migration. You can't stop people crossing borders. What you can do is try and regulate it a bit better. Yeah. So that it doesn't, you know, so, so you have to, well, I think what people really want is a sense of control. And, yeah. okay, countries have the right to decide who lives in the country and who yeah. doesn't. but And, and, and we, decide this yeah. in a reasonable amount of time. Yeah, right? in a reasonable amount of time and in an orderly way. And, you, that, and then you need countries to agree with each other. So that you need to have... You know, so you slow down the situation, where, for example, where people from, from... Refugees from Iraq are being told they have to leave the country, but Iraq won't take them back. And that's another thing you can only get to grips with if actually countries sit down and talk to each other, which is what's happening here. Yeah, okay. That's a positive. <laughs> yeah. point, that? Good job, Gordon. <laughs> Good job, yeah. All right. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can now send comments, compliments, and abuse by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, you can subscribe to our feed, give the podcast a rating, and share it. My thanks to Molly Quell and Paul Peters. I'm Gordon Darroch, and we'll be back next week.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's another Dutch tradition that's uh, being taken away from us. Yeah. Even though the most important Dutch tradition that's being taken away from us is Domino Day. Yeah. Which is mm. still, uh, uh, I think they stopped uh, broadcasting Domino Day 10 years ago. Yeah. And it's still not uh, returned to Dutch television to uh, to the sadness of me and many other yeah. Dutch but people. But you still like
0: mark it you still market, uh, every, or you commemorate it every year. Every yeah. year, yeah. 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 I, do do you actually knock down the dominoes symbolically y- in your house? Yes, a I, I line
1: up. Uh, a we line should up do dominoes. that this year. We
2: should yeah. do a Domino's Day Yeah. Uh commemoration. Yes,
1: are we going to break the world record? I think it's set at 8 million uh, dominoes. No. no, we are not. No. no? Yeah. no. Should we just
0: quickly explain to listeners what Domino Day is? Uh, domino Day, <laughs> yeah,
1: you can look it up on, on the internet. There are a lot of uh, videos yeah. there, but it, it was an annual event in the Netherlands where a group of people, students mostly, they uh, tried to break the world record of the most dominoes that, yeah. that are fallen. Yeah, you know, longest domino chain. Longest yeah. domino chain, yeah. Uh, and it uh, evolved into a national event, basically. Mm-hmm. It was broadcast live on television and uh, they made a lot of uh, very nice feels. For example, they would, yeah. they would form the Mona Lisa in, in Domino's, uh, yeah. for example. It was pretty spectacular. Yeah, but what
0: is the, what was the event again that killed Domino Day? Because I think this is what made it special.
1: I think they s- they couldn't find any sponsors anymore. Uh. I think it was uh, because of the uh, economic crisis in 2008. Uh, was uh, it, was, I thought it was because, no, it was because, because they destroyed
0: the, the bird that the, bird the, the, oh, the, the
1: no, destroyed That was in 2000 2000 2003 day. but after yeah. that they continued uh, oh, they uh, doing on. it. Yeah, yeah, they carried on. But the Domino Mus is, I think, the, the mother of all upheavals Yeah, completely. Yeah. They were preparing this a domino world record. So they had put up millions of dominoes, and then all of a sudden, in this giant hall, <laughs> a sparrow flew in, uh, knocking down thousands, ten thousands, hundred mm. thousands of dominoes. So they had to do something because the date was approaching. So they had to fix this, and they couldn't find or they couldn't catch the, the sparrow because if they tried, the bird would be yeah, knocked down, more uh, knock down even more. And mm. um, so they hired a hunter. And uh, he shot the domino, and that uh, caused no, he a lot showed, of, oh of op-ev. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He shot the domino. He may mess. have also shot some, domino. he he some, some I mean, dominoes as well. He probably shot dominoes as yeah. well. Yeah. So um, um, that caused a lot of op because mm. people uh, felt very, really sorry for this bird. But you can still find the domino mess. It is stuffed and it's on display in the mm. uh, Naturhistorisch Museum in Rotterdam. Yes, yes
2: in the uh, Birds with a Backstory, or Animals with a Backstory exhibition, which yes. is very cool, and you should go see it.